0: Hello and welcome to Multifamily Investing Made Simple, the podcast It's all about taking the complexity out of real estate investing so that you can start taking action today. I'm your host, Anthony Vecino of Invictus Capital. Joined as always by Dan, I no longer have a blurry camera, Kruger. How you doing, Dan? Fixed it. I'm good. I'm good. We got it focused. It was weird, but we got through it. You know, for a moment there, I thought you were part Yeti. I told that joke. joke and nobody <laughs> ever gets it. I, I, I swear. Because Yetis are they're just always blurry. Never mind. Anyways, I today's going it. I, I get it. That l- was too intelligent for me. You gotta dumb I, it down.
1: Just I could do like right dad that. jokes. That's it.
0: <laughs> well, that was kind of a dad joke. I was trying to set you up, but it you know what, dear listeners, if you're if you're wondering already if this is like any indication of what's to come, it's not. Today's show is gonna be excellent because we have a first ever for you today. Now, usually when we bring guests on, it's me and Dan ganging up on them. It's two on one. And we like it because it's strength in numbers. But today we actually have a duo, a partnership, just like Dan and myself. So they're fighting on equal, equal terms with us. We're not going to have the strength in numbers. We have the, the one, the only Cody Laughlin and Brian Alfaro of Blue Oak Capital. These guys are based out of Houston and they are multifamily specialists focused on Texas, Tennessee, and Kansas. And I'm really excited. I've been on their podcast before, had a fantastic conversation. These guys know what they're doing. I think they're going to bring a ton of value. So without further ado,
2: Cody, Brian, how are you guys doing? Doing well. you're lucky our third partner isn't here, then you'd really be outnumbered. <laughs> nope, can't, can't allow that. Nope. <laughs>
0: See, Dan just had a baby. And the thing that you have to know about kids and, and just in life is like, never let them outnumber you, right? And so never let the guests outnumber you. That's the key.
3: Mm-hmm. That is true. Take that from somebody. Wall, I was gonna say I've got three kids, so
0: I know all <laughs> oh, about <no>. that. <laughs> Cody, bad mistake. No. <laughs> oh, my wife reminds me of that all the time after, after the third one. I promise. <laughs> Too good. So, guys, give us a little little intro. Give us a give us the bio. Who are you guys and what, what the heck are you doing?
3: Cool. Well, I'll kick it off. Uh, you know, again, Cody Laughlin, managing partner, Blue Capital, and uh, been a real estate entrepreneur for about 10 years now. And, you know, like most everybody else had a very traditional upbringing, working class parents who instilled, you know, the the value of a high quality um, education. So I went to school, made good grades, you know, went to college, made good grades, graduated, uh, started a good W-2 career and realized very quickly that, you know, looking at what long term wealth really was. I wasn't sure that I was going to find that uh, with a W-2 coincidentally around the same time i ended up just you know finding myself becoming a real estate entrepreneur via accidental landlord and you know the rest is history read the purple bible as i like to refer to the rich dad poor dad and you know started on the path of becoming a real estate entrepreneur made our transition to multifamily back in 2019 met my partner john and uh, started working together. We launched Bloke Capital. Fortunate enough to meet Brian midway through 2020. And uh, here we are today. So,
2: very go cool. ahead, Brian. Yeah, for sure. Uh, very fortunate, thanks, Cody, appreciate it. And thanks to you, Dan and Anthony for having us on the show, glad to be here. Uh, as Cody kind of mentioned, uh, you know, I met him last year, but my story started in 2018. That's really when I started looking at real estate in general. Uh, just like Cody, had a you know, very blue-collar parents, uh, humble background. You know, went to went, was the first person in my family to go to college and you know, graduate with a business degree. Spent a long time working at uh, with another business partner of mine and a restaurant concept. We were, I was there for over 15 years, and then we eventually spun off something totally different—a uh, coffee shop concept, uh, which is still due to this day. But all along that journey, my partner uh, had always been picking up some small assets, whether it's a single-family house or a small commercial real estate, and. I didn't have a real estate background. Nobody in my family ever owned any real estate. Nobody ever talked about real estate. I had no idea how to even buy real estate. Uh, you know, when I, when, I made, when it was time to finally buy my first house after I got married, I had to read like two or three books to kind of make sure I knew what I was getting into before I did that. But because of that, I, I, every every book that I read about buying your own house always had a chapter about investing. And it might have been just a small little paragraph, but eventually, I caught the bug and. You know, found platforms like bigger pockets and uh, started listening to podcasts watching youtube videos and just sucking in as much information as i can just really loved everything about real estate uh, not only you know of course people want to be able to make money and build financial wealth through it but all the other benefits that come along with it as well the, the time freedom and the, the ability ultimately to give back not only to the communities that you're you're owning or that you're in but also uh, just to your, you know whether its your churches or schools or your local neighborhood but you know, had a lot of limiting beliefs when I got started, like I'm sure Cody did too. Like he became an accident landlord and starting a single family. And, you know, one of those big limiting beliefs was just uh, you know, didn't have enough money, didn't know the right people, just couldn't do anything bigger than you know, a single family house. So I started there, got my realtor's license, did some stuff in the single family space and you know, quickly realized after about 18 months of doing that and grinding, which was what I thought it was the top of the market. It seems like we're still at the top of the market, but <laughs> uh, uh, that it wasn't really aligned with my personality. I wanted to go bigger and, and to and to not necessarily move fast at a, at a at a responsible level, but just wanted to have that economy of scale that you get owning a business. And I found that hard to do, you know, reaching my goals in the single family space. So late 2019, early 2020, dive into multifamily, joined a mentorship group, uh, met John, our, our third partner, met Cody, and I guess you can say the rest is history. Here we are, here in Houston, looking to do some deals.
0: Very cool. So, how real quickly? Because you know, I don't know when this episode will go live, but it is timely right now. How are you guys doing down there in Texas? I know you guys were struggling there. Hanging in. <laughs> it's it's been an interesting week to
3: say the least. You know, a lot of a lot of the Northerners make fun of us because uh, you know, we just ex- experienced this winter blast, and <laughs> and they're like, man, come on, we live that every day. What are you guys complaining about? But mm. you know, reality is, we just don't have the infrastructure to endure what we just went through and, and some of these frigid temperatures for so long. So, you know, mm-hmm. I think for Brian and I, you know, we were fortunate that we, you know, we were out, we we're without utilities for some time. We had a little bit of some plumbing issues, but aside from that, we're very much
2: fortunate as
3: compared to some of the other people we know in our network. So. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. And Anthony, and, and uh, the thing you'll know is Texans are resilient. We know, so, <laughs> uh, especially Houstonians. I like to say, uh, you know, between Hurricane Harvey and the tropical storms, and now we have a winter storm on the list. Who would have ever thought? <laughs> mm-hmm. It was 12 degrees here. Again, I never thought I'd say that in my life. But uh, yeah, we're here. We're kicking out. We're we're doing okay. Nice. The crazier
3: thing is, it was 12 degrees a week ago, and then here it is. We're 70 degrees right now. In I had shorts. shorts on today.
0: Back to back to our normal winter. So, <laughs> hey, it was like 35 degrees here today, and I was in shorts too. It's a good day. Yeah. <laughs> it's
1: a heat wave right now for
0: us. Yeah, one we well, one of the interesting things I think that we can take away from from this you know episode of what's happened in Texas for you know it's a really hot market for a lot of people looking to invest in in Texas. But um, one of the things that I, I think some new operators will do, or operators that are flying a little bit too close to the sun to try to make deals work, is that they're not coming to the table with like enough reserves or capex. And so they're taking it out of cash flow. And so this is I'm already getting really deep into the weeds here, but it's really it's really timely because I think a lot of people that are getting burned, they they didn't have the reserves. They don't have the capEx budget to be able to to weather what's happening.
3: You are absolutely correct. And you know that's been a conversation that we've been having as far as you know, our focus on flight to quality assets, right? Your mm-hmm. your more your newer vintage assets and whatnot. And what we've seen, and listen, we don't want to highlight anybody's struggle or distress, but you've seen these older buildings, especially here in Houston, the '60s, '70s product, that have a lot of plumbing issues right now, a lot of busted water lines, a lot of water damage from those issues. And to your point, Anthony, if you look at the you know where we've been at in this market cycle over the past couple of years, where there's really not a spread in cap rates across the different asset classes, mm-hmm. right? So your A, B, and C you can buy for the same cap rate, essentially. So, and people, you're exactly right. People are coming in undercapitalized, and they're going to be feeling a lot of pain, uh, you know, with these recent um, recent uh, experiences. So, you know, and again, we don't want to highlight that. We don't. We, too. Yeah, absolutely right. You know, so. Yeah, it it just goes it just goes to show you the importance of you have to buy right, right? You have to do your due diligence, you have to be well capitalized. Um mm-hmm. and, and we we haven't been seeing a lot of that over the past couple of years. So we can talk mm-hmm. about it a little further, but um...
0: No, I totally I absolutely agree. Right now it's funny, the timing is is just very interesting because I'm I'm reading The Black Swan right now by Nassim Taleb, and it's all about these, you know, big events that we can't predict, but they have really large macro consequences. And and one of the ways that you can hedge against that is just by being well-prepared and capitalized. I think that's something that all operators can keep in mind. Danny, have any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, that speaks to the, one of our core philosophies as a group is to basically plan for the worst whenever we're underwriting a deal, and whenever we're operating a deal. We've gotten some, uh, I don't want to say maybe crap, but uh, we've had some people in the past that have kind of looked at our underwriting strategies with a raised eyebrow and said, you know, know, well, how is the deal ever going to work for you? And it's like, well, I mean, that's the point. Like maybe we're at a point where the good (laughs) deals are farther, fewer and farther between. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so that's been our philosophy. And, you know, with COVID, we we weathered that uh, better than a lot of people. But um, I was going to ask about uh, your guys' portfolio. I assume- uh, that the bulk of your portfolios in in Texas is that correct?
3: So we we're more uh, when it comes to our portfolios on the passive side as LP investors, right? And and mm-hmm. our collectively our deals that we're passive invested are across multiple different markets across multiple different oh, states. Okay.
1: Gotcha. And
3: so uh, listen, we we love Texas. It's a phenomenal market. It's very attractive. I think everybody pretty much knows that. But a lot you know, competition, to- I'm sure. Oh, man, when it comes to the acquisitions, it's, you know, you're one of 30, 40 offers if you're here in the primary markets and ask me how I know <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's becoming increasingly, increasingly harder to be uh, to be competitive in this space. So that's yeah. a, it's a falling, uh, falling knife for me. You know, mm-hmm. you want to be in a market that is in high demand, but at the same time it's very hard to make sense of some of these valuations that we're seeing right now. So, yeah,
1: well, that's I mean, that's good. I mean, it sounds like then you're from a portfolio perspective, you're uh, diversified and you weren't really exposed to the the weather issues, the Texas just had. So when you guys were talking about your experiences, it was primarily your personal experiences, not necessarily your portfolio that you're invested in. Is that correct? Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah, correct. Good. correct. Good. Good. So I want to tie this in to the weekly bad investing advice, because we talked a little bit before the show, um, and I have an idea of what you guys are going to drop on us for this bad, advi- bad advice. Um, and I think it ties in nicely to what we're ta- discussing right now. So why don't you go ahead and drop that on us? Because I know the people at home—they've been waiting for this. This is the only bit that they care about. They don't actually listen <laughs> beyond this point. So just just be aware, guys. Our listenership just drops off a cliff after they get their their tidbit.
3: <laughs> well, I would definitely say that you know, avoid getting the deal fever right now. And, you know, if you've been in the space for any time now, again, my journeys are going on almost two years, you're putting in time, you're putting in effort, you're putting in all the work, you're doing everything that everybody's coached you to do. And if you're, if you're having a hard time coming across deals, listen, the experienced operators are having a hard time coming across deals. But what you're seeing is, is you're seeing some very hyperinflated valuations in the marketplace. We're seeing a deviation from traditional fundamentals, I would say. And, you know, going back to the point of being undercapitalized when you're getting into some of these older assets, just as an example. So I would definitely say, you know, you, you have to be patient and you have to understand that, you know, uh, it's a it's an interesting spot we're at in this market cycle, but you just can't get caught up in the hype. You know, you still have to mind your fundamentals. And and with that point and understand that no deal is better than a bad deal.
2: Absolutely. Brian, I had advice, buy everything. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I love it. I mean, real estate's always appreciating, right? Like on a long enough time frame, sure. it always goes up. <laughs> yeah. There you go. It's got to yeah. got to live for a couple hundred years, and it'll prove out. Important yeah. yeah. well, caveat we,
1: to that uh, point that you made as well as the 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 timeline does matter, right? You know, for mm-hmm. people who are looking for things to hold for the next thirty years, some of these deals that don't make sense to guys like us who are looking at maybe like a five to seven or maybe sure. even ten year timeline you know some it, it all kind of depends on what the particular investor's parameters are and what they're looking to accomplish mm-hmm. so i'd say the shorter your time frame the less likely it is that you're going to find a decent deal right now but if you're looking for stuff to if you're in your 20s early 30s and you're looking for stuff to hold until your retirement i mean hell, as long as you're not losing on cash flow and you're in a good market i mean there's a thesis to you know High at the top of the market, theoretically. Yeah.
2: And I think An- Anthony said this offline, but uh, we were joking about some, like size doesn't matter, right? So like now <laughs> with that point, it might be a good opportunity to find some JV deals and align with partners that have a 15-year timeline, that have exactly. a 10-year timeline or 20-year timeline. And if you're in a great market like Houston, for example, and you're buying with some partners that have that same, that same you know, business strategy.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I hate to say the price doesn't matter, but if you're in an appreciated market and you're buying it right, it, you know, in ten or fifteen years, you're going to look back on that. Ideally, as long as it's operated well, mm-hmm. you can say, wow, it felt like we overpaid at the time, but you, you know, you would imagine at that point, it's it's worth significantly more as long as you've done a good job in everything the asset.
1: Yeah. and then if you add in the the uh interest rate component there sure. even if there is little to no organic appreciation in a market if you're able to borrow at three percent today um and lock that in just the debt pay down alone even if the market stays flat yep. if you're, you're going to have that equity area, yeah you can mm-hmm. that that will work in your favor so there's there's something to be said about taking advantage of low interest rates because with inflation where it's at with interest rates where they're at effectively inflation's uh, washed away the cost of debt uh to a large degree, so for some people, it might make sense you know to buy a long term hold, get some nice long term fixed debt on it, and uh you know don't look to uh you know catch a big swing in the market, but just kind of let the debt do its thing and you know
0: let it, let, yeah, let it play for out. Me, for me, this comes down to really understanding what's your outcome and what's a strategy for getting there if you're you know if you're playing by the same playbook that we were utilizing at you know pre covid well things have changed the environments change and the the playbook's not not necessarily going to work as effectively and if we're in this really if we're at the top of the market and interest rates are really low then the strategy that we've been employing over the last couple of years that might not be as effective moving forward but that doesn't mean that there's not really good strategies still out there to be utilized it's about Mm -hmm. recognizing which play is going to work the best given the environment so I want to get back to something that Cody mentioned, which was, you know, not deviating from fundamental principles of underwriting. And I'm curious for you guys, as you're going out there and looking at deals right now, what are those fundamentals that you're holding, you know, close to the chest and saying, nope, not going to deviate off of that one? Well, I think the focus
3: on historical performance is key for us, right? And I think what you've been seeing in a lot of underwriting now is, is this assumption that okay, you're still going to be able to go in and force rents, for example, by mm-hmm. X amount with a capital improvement project. Well, if you're in a market that historically hasn't been able to achieve the type of rents that you're projecting, you know, you're going to find yourself in a hard spot. So that's just one example, but things like that, you know, looking at again debt structure, and, and this goes back to those funds, Dan, you mentioned about understanding your strategy, making sure that you're not only buying right, but you're financing right, right? You're applying mm-hmm. the right debt to the right strategy. Um, and so, I, you know, those are just two examples off the top of my head that I would definitely highlight. But, you know, I think you're seeing a lot of people with some very aggressive assumptions right now in in their underwriting. And, uh, you know, for us, I think it's, it's okay to be Somewhat aggressive, <laughs> you know, but you still have to, you know, you still have to make sure that, again, all of those other key p- components are in place. If you buy r- at the wrong valuation, if you don't apply the right debt, you're going to be in a lot, a lot of trouble. So,
1: yeah I think you're getting uh you kind of mentioned there with these assumptions that you know you you put x amount of dollars and you're gonna get rents up to x and you know that hasn't been achieved yet I think at that point you're getting away from investing and you're more so speculating you know which is fine True. uh people could speculate but I think it's if important you know- that people realize that they are speculating and you know and they're aware of it and they don't try to uh, put it in this box and say it's investing when really it's just a speculative play that's more ga- more of a gamble there's a place for that in the portfolio but um i think that it's important for people to be aware that if they start having these assumptions that you know things are going to be you know, so great and it hasn't been proven out. That's, that's a very speculative play in my opinion.
3: Sure. Well, and I think it goes back to, again, the conversation we were just mentioning about market cycles, right? And if you, if you were back in 2010, 2011, right out of the great recession, you could speculate and you could make some pretty terrible assumptions and still make some tremendous amount of money, right? You're mm-hmm. just coming out of arguably one of the worst economic crises that we've seen. And, and we've seen that right over the past decade. Look how many people have just, just made a ton, a ton of money in real estate because of just that or appreciation that we've seen.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: We're at a point in this market cycle where I believe we're entering more of the age of operational management than we are, you know, that organic growth on the income side. Right. And, and I could be completely wrong in that, but I think that's where we're going to be the true value add is going to be more on the operational Management side than it is going to be on that, really relying on those, you know, again, four, five, six, eight percent rent bumps that you're, uh, rent growth, excuse me, that you're seeing in some of these markets.
1: So I'm curious what you mean by that. Is that, um, is, are those operational improvements uh, something along the lines of more robust customer service from a property management perspective and being more competitive? Uh, in the market by offering a better service and better product, or is it more so going in and trying to uh, aggressively control your operating expenses, renegotiating contracts? I'm kind of curious what angle you guys are are taking on that operation side.
3: Definitely both. Definitely both. Number one, you have to you have to make sure that you care for your residents, right? You want your you want your residents to stay, and when you take care of your community, the community is going to take care of the asset, you know. And but. When it comes from the business perspective, from a business operational uh, side, absolutely. It's really just making sure that you're refining those expense assumptions, making sure that you're managing those, following your KPIs and staying on top of that. So that way you can you know, steer the ship in the right direction,
2: per
1: mm-hmm.
2: se. Yeah, I think the saying is uh, what I like to say is best product, best price, right? Mm-hmm. So you don't necessarily need to be at the top of the market, but you definitely want to when I have the best product in the market, you know whether that means having amenities that other communities don't have, um, whether you know physical amenities, dog parks, uh, playgrounds, things like that. There's also the other stuff that some some intangible stuff. You know, having really top-notch property managers. And when we underwrite, if the you know market rent for a property manager's thousand bucks, you know we we go we go higher than that because you you get what you pay for, right? From the talent perspective, and then also just leveraging things in the industry that are somewhat new but could be highly impactful like technology for example Uh, you know finding ways to utilize technology to potentially limit your amount of expenses or overhead in your offices you know especially if you're running let's say a smaller asset that can maybe afford full-time property manager between smart locks and cameras and, and, and just all the electronic things that you have nowadays with rents and document signing ideally you could go through an entire leasing process and never meet anybody in person which is crazy when you think about, you know, five years ago. So say, you know, always looking for those types of opportunities, whether you're managing a larger asset or even if you've got a you know, 12, 15, 20, unit, whatever those, those principles can still be applied.
1: Yeah. We were just chatting with, uh, what I should say we, I'm not sure if Anthony was on the call. I can't remember, but it's chatting with someone here locally about this, um, Uh, potential project we're looking at. And uh, a topic came up of this new build that went up across the street. We're talking about how the property manager leased that up uh, during COVID. I think they uh, started leasing early 2020. And uh, this guy pretty much beat the pre-COVID pro forma expectations of the lease up. And he did it 100% virtually. 100%. Hundred percent, right. and there was like a yep. third, I think it was a forty-some unit property uh, that they got all the way le- leased up during COVID, hundred uh, percent virtually. So that kind of makes you wonder, you know, what else can you? Uh, uh, look at virtualizing. I don't know if that's even a word, uh, but <laughs> going virtual on to, to reduce your overhead because it, obviously if you're doing all that virtual, you don't need multiple leasing agents uh, spending their time running around physically. You Probably have one guy right. at a laptop uh, managing all the communication. Maybe you spend some money for someone to go out there with a drone and shoot some video, but I'd imagine yeah. it's a heck of a lot cheaper to do 100% virtual lease up than to have physical staff
2: running around. All, all day long. Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. You just see it. You, you don't even have to keep it simple, right? Was it KISS? Keep it stupid simple, whatever. Even if you're it's managing stupid. a ten unit, and you're self managing. It's like, why can't somebody who's interested, you know, send you a picture of their ID and get them a sign a, you know, something that your attorney draws up. You mm-hmm. um give them a temporary code through an app on a phone that's on your smart lock. They get, you know, access from 2 p.m. to 3 p.m. to the unit. They let themselves in. They book around, they close the door behind them, it locks, it's a one-time entry. They send you a message, they like the unit, you send them the app online, they apply, and then you leave the keys in the unit, but you give them that one-time code to get in. Like, there's no reason they even see them at that point. That's running a 10 unit, so why can't you do that on a more economic scale? It's very possible. Yeah. And I'll
0: be honest, I don't like seeing people in general. Like when I go out <laughs> for, for food, I would like to just deal with a machine. I don't want people. So if I can if I can lease and not have to see a single human, I'm hi- I'm really sure. happy. <laughs> there
3: you go. I think most people would agree that until something goes wrong, and then they want yeah, they yeah, want somebody yeah. to, to to look at. But
1: yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, that's very interesting. So it's uh, I'm I'm curious. In addition to um, Focusing on maybe you guys haven't even started this yet, and it's just something that you're kind of looking at in the future. But in addition to focusing on uh, more of the operational improvements, as opposed to the the heavier value add, you know, capital expenditures to force appreciation, um, with uh, you know 2020 having happened and now this, uh, you know, weather in Texas, all these things happening, they're kind of making people uh, rethink their strategies. What are you guys doing now? Um, I think especially for you, Cody, you've been in the biz for about 10 years. How have you shifted recently uh, with everything over the past 18 months as far as your investment strategy or or have you shifted?
3: I haven't really shifted. I mean, the, the focus and philosophy and the investing thesis has remained the same. Mm-hmm. I, I would say as as we keep going through this cycle and understanding that it is getting harder and harder to be competitive. I have been looking at more creative ways with Brian and John. How do we collaborate? How do we look at the underwriting and see what areas can we be more creative in? Now, again, sticking to fundamentals, not trying to get, you know, so far off or deviated from what we've been doing already. But what are some other opportunities that we can to to make our offer more appealing, for example? Mm -hmm. You know, and, and I think I use the reference of things that we can offer by way of maybe putting more earnest money down, maybe shortening our due diligence period. Maybe we consider hard money on our offer versus adjusting the offer price. But, you know, go, without getting too far off the question, you know, again, I think the thesis has remained the same. The focus has always been more on that flight to quality, that, that quality asset, understanding that, you know, we want a good, predictable cash flow, that we can rely on without the heavy capital expenditure, you know, and I, and I, that's what we've tried to build our business around.
2: Yeah. And I think also too, to piggyback on that, Dan, uh, I think the strategy overall on how you get deals, you know, when times are tough and the broker's calling you, that's nice. That's easy. Right. <laughs> but right now, you know, what we've seen in our market and I'm sure you can probably attest to this around the U S is, Brokers are holding all the keys. You know, they they're, they have so much leverage. It's a it's a seller's market. Prices are at an all time high. Cap rates are compressed. Interest rates are low. You know, a lot of these big companies have in house debt. You know, they they're holding all the keys for for doing the deal, and it's just making it really competitive uh, for people that are looking to pay you know fair prices for assets. So, you know, we look at other creative ways. Besides, I mean, of course, we we value our broker relationships tremendously want to continue to do that but you know looking to partner with people who have access uh, on you know with different brokers on the shortlist or, or going off market as well and just networking with other investors who are, who are getting you know, access to deals that other people don't have and seeing if there's an opportunity to add value versus just trying to do everything on our own
1: mm-hmm. yeah that's huge and I, I can kind of uh, double down on that we've we've had a similar approach here we've uh in recent months really uh the the good deals that we've been finding have been deals that have been off market uh, quote unquote, um, where relationships have developed with either brokers or sellers over the years where you know we've built up this reputation where we close and they are uh, willing to uh, you know go to us to get a deal done. they might not get it as high of dollar, uh, price tag as they could if they went and marketed it publicly, um, but if you can manage to be one of the first calls before things get marketed to the masses, I think that's where the deal opportunities are. Because as soon as someone uh, you know papers the the city and in, in offering memorandums for a property, and you've got people coming in from out of state to walk it, and they're doing their call for offers, and you're trying to get to best and final, like that whole thing is just a big you know, bid up process. But if you can have a good relationship and someone's willing to transact with you based on the fact that they know you're going to close and you're not going to dick them around in the process. I think that's where the 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 deals are found these days, as far as I can tell. Mm-hmm.
3: Dan to piggyback off that, you know, because you're absolutely right. What we're seeing right now is most of the deals that are occurring or transacting ha- are off market deals. And mm-hmm. you're right. They are with the people that these brokers know that they have those relationships with, right? Well you know, I hope that people are listening understand that those are not things that happen overnight. You're not just going to be able to call mm-hmm. up a broker tomorrow and say, hey, send me all of your pocket listings or all yeah. of your off-market listings. It does not happen that way. You know, they you have to really build on that relationship and you have to instill that trust, as you mentioned, for them to give you those opportunities, so I just want I want to encourage people just to know that you know this goes back to what we were saying earlier. It's a long term game. You have to build these relationships. It starts with one piece at a time, but it can't, mm-hmm. it's not going to just happen with a phone call, and you think that you're you know a rock star.
1: <laughs> yeah, and even to go a little deeper on that too, for people who are are newer and trying to get into this, uh, it it doesn't even taking brokers out to lunch every day for for a year won't get the job done. You've actually yeah. got to close deals, multiple deals for a long period of time. And ideally have a track record where you, you close every deal and you don't retrade. And so you've got a, a robust track record and it, it kind of gets tough for people who are newer because it's one of those situations where you, you need, it's like when you're going and trying to get a job for the first time out of college, you need experience to be able to it's get an entry to get level job
0: that needs 10 years of experience. Exactly <laughs> exactly. So that's kind
1: of the catch is like how do you you know how do you get that track record in in uh, this type of market where you know every mark- publicly marketed deal is getting bid way the heck up? Um, so, you know, you can't obviously go out and do these bad deals to get a track record, but, you know, I would, I kind of know where, like what my suggestion would be, but I'm kind of curious what you guys would have for maybe newer people out there trying to get in, get that track record, uh, but not go out and overpay for these overly marketed deals.
3: Yeah. Well, this goes exactly into Brian's point he was making earlier where you have to surround your people. I mean, you have to surround yourself with the right people, right? I mean, again, a relationship-driven business, you've got to get in the inner circle with those who have that track record and that experience. And, you know, you've got to find a way to add value to them and find that alignment of interest in working with them. But, you know, partnering with other people that have that successful track record to lean on is a great way for people to get started. And, you know, we had a, uh, we've had we had a mutual friend on our show. You guys know him very well, Mr. Bill Hamm. And you know, Bill has talked about this with us for about a year now. Listen, it's going to get harder and harder for newer investors coming into the space to find a way in, you know, mm-hmm. which personally, I like. I like the fact that there's a very high barrier to entry, right? Because if you do get through the crack and you do make it, guess what? Everybody that comes behind you is going to have to go through that same same barrier of entry that you just went through. So it's going to take some time. But mm-hmm. nonetheless, you know, it is going to get harder for those who don't have that track record, especially in today's time. And again, I reference, you know, the comment I made earlier, where even experienced operators are having trouble finding deals right now. So it's really, really important that you rely on those relationships, get in these inner circles with some of these experienced guys and start, um, you know, start finding a way to add value to them and
2: partner with them.
1: Yeah, 100%. Mm -hmm. That's, that's what I was going to say as well as, you know, partner up. If you're new, you need to get in, find some way to add value to somebody and leverage their track record for a couple of deals. And then all of a sudden, you've got a track record with
0: them. That's amazing, actually, because I'm going to be the contrarian. I had completely different advice. I was going to say, take whatever deal came across doesn't matter how bad it is because it's the law of the first deal. Once you get it, you're gonna have momentum. Don't go Michael Blanc on us. No? Okay. Oh,
1: I'm sorry. <laughs> law of the first deal.
0: <laughs> As, is that trademarked? I'm not allowed to sorry, Michael. <laughs> no, income. don't go, don't go do bad deals. That's that's just tongue-in-cheek. <laughs> right. But but there there are, some people do actually suggest. That idea where it's like, hey, maybe go take a marginal first deal so that you can get that track record, get that momentum. And a marginal deal is only a razor blade away from being a very bad deal. So you got to be really careful.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I could, I could agree with that. And maybe instead of saying do a marginal deal, maybe just do a a small deal because the deal is a deal, right? So maybe you're out there looking for a 30 or 50 unit property, can't find anything good, you know, pick up a decent six or seven unit, right? Mm Because that's still a track record that that you can look back and, and, and put on your resume.
0: Um, so. And the qualifier I might make there is don't look for home runs and grand slams. It's okay to hit a base hit. You can, if you only ever hit base hits and never strike out and never get out. You're like, do
1: really well. You're going to do good. <laughs> <laughs> Stacking up singles. I love it. Mm-hmm. No, that sounds like 100%, 100% agree reference. with that.
3: Listen, <laughs> you know, there's nothing wrong. <laughs> yeah. You know, Anthony, you're absolutely right. There, there's nothing wrong with going, you know, just for the singles, right? Singles and doubles. And if, mm-hmm. again, if you're coming out of the gate thinking that you're going to go find the unicorn or go, go hit that home run, I mean, you're going to be out of the business really quick. You're, you're going to get really frustrated very, very quick. And, um, you know, again, in an effort to build that track record, man, just again, stick to your fundamentals, stick to your discipline, just go find a good solid deal to get your track record going. And then, it, like you said, it's that law, of
0: the first deal the momentum kind of falls after that. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I wanted to pivot a little bit of the conversation because I think we've been talking a little bit from the perspective of perspective active investors. So, I want to shift to the perspective of a passive investor and thinking what should they be looking at right now as they're evaluating different deals from different operators. I saw a deal come across my table the other day that had it was projecting like a 40% IRR on a 3-year hold and I was like just kind of blew my mind, and I. It, and Can you send like, that to me? I, I will send it to you. It <laughs> it blew my mind that somebody would even suggest those numbers. Was it Bitcoin? I, yes, yes. No, it was. <laughs> it was a. It was a multifamily property, and so. <laughs> but you know, we know by looking at that, we go. Mm, that seems mm. really skeptical. I'm really skeptical. And I'm curious from your guys' perspective, what things would you look for as a passive investor to make you think like, okay, these, uh, these operators have been diligent in their underwriting. They've been conservative. I believe in this deal is, is um, actually doable. I, I would
3: say you've heard this over and over, and I definitely think it's, uh, it rings true even more so today is you have to look at the track record of the sponsorship team look at the performance of the sponsorship team. And ideally you would want to see at least one or two members on that sponsorship team that have even gone through the last economic downturn in the great recession. And then how did they handle that? I would say that's number one. What, what professional team do they have in place? Who are they working with as far as their property management teams, uh, construction teams, things like that. I would want to see who, what kind of team they've built around them uh, though. Those two things I would focus on more than anything right now. Cause I I agree with you, Anthony. I think you're seeing a lot of that right now. You're seeing a lot of people coming in with these crazy assumptions and not really having the experience in a particular market or with that particular strategy uh, to validate that assumption, so.
2: Yeah, I would say, you know, if you're a passive investor, be the ultimate skeptic. I mean, question everything. If the sponsor's not willing to answer your questions, uh, that's also a problem, right? Because if they're not willing to answer your questions Before they take your money, imagine what's going to happen after they take your money. Um, Probably not going to be good. So I would say question everything. You know, if you have zero experience investing in multifamily real estate, commercial real estate, or just passively investing in real estate in general, I would highly encourage to follow the advice we gave earlier and talk to other people who do. There are tons, tons of passive investors out there that are looking at deals that have, you know, 10, 20, 30 passive opportunities going on at any given time, they're living, you know, off the cash flow. they can very you know, you want to get in their social circle, uh, and, and see if they can help, you know, put eyes on some of the stuff you're looking at. If you get a deal via an email on a sponsor you talk to, and it's got a 40% IRR, you know, most of the time that experienced sponsor can very quickly look at the fundamentals of that deal and tell you like, no, this is, there's no way this is a, you know, an A class and a, and a stable, it's stabilized, like where's the value add, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, maybe if it's a D class that has 0% occupancy, maybe, and they can give you that perspective too, but then even still, you know, so I guess it's about your risk tolerance, but surround yourself with people who've been there, uh, ask good questions, and that'll help you, you know, gain a little bit more confidence on top of, like Cody said, finding, making sure you're working with people who've been there and done that before.
1: Yeah, I think that's such good advice right there. We say that to a lot of uh, investors that kind of come into our circle and and we're talking to about the business model and showing them potential deals. We always say, you know, go and, you know, have someone else look at this for you on your behalf, whether it be a lawyer, a CPA, an advisor, have a, like a non-objective third party that is most- Non-objective? Or I'm sorry, an objective third party <laughs> that's most importantly, not emotionally attached mm-hmm. to the deal because we get, as operators can appreciate this when you find an opportunity that you want and you start, you're you working through the underwriting. Sometimes you 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 start to go down that slippery slope of trying to make the deal work. And I think mm-hmm. investors can do that on their end as well. If they see an sure. opportunity that looks really pretty in the pictures, right? They really want to be, get into it. Maybe it's like a an ego thing they it's it's like kind of a landmark property that'd be really cool to brag about and say they own they want to find a way to to make it work you can almost start to sell stuff to yourself so having a, a third party that's emotionally like not involved whatsoever to look at it and see if they can break it is is hugely valuable i think for passive investors and even active uh guys like us uh having someone take a look at the underwriting that you're doing to make sure you're not trying to uh force the deal to work that when there's really not much there
3: yeah mm-hmm. I know on our end, I love it when somebody can take a look at a deal we're looking at and punch every hole in it they can. <laughs> I want somebody to destroy yep. the deal for me because because you're absolutely right. It's very, very easy to fall in that trap right now. You get that emotional attachment. You get that excitement. Mm-hmm. And again, right now, def- deal fever is very contagious. You know, I mean, everybody you see all these people still conducting deals and you want to be a part of that. Um, so it does get very easy to fall into that trap. so I, I love it when people can come in and just start ripping holes and stuff because you know you, you learn a lot about uh, things that you can easily overlook
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, that's absolutely perfect advice guys. The last thing I'll add there is just something that sh- we already mentioned earlier is keeping in mind where we are in the market cycle. understanding that you know a deal that comes across your table right now that's on a three year hold and has some pretty optimistic, projections within the next year, well, we're still in the middle of a pandemic. That hasn't gone away. You know, We're still living in this world where who, who really knows what the next year or two is going to bring. So being overly optimistic and then tying debt terms to that. So these are just things to keep in mind as a passive investor uh, and just keeping the full picture in view. But let's pivot, guys. Let's get your book recommendation. I'm, I'm going to ask for two books, one from each of you, and you cannot recommend the Purple
2: Bible. <laughs> Go ahead, Brian. Uh, let's say the first one, I will say it's sort of real estate related. Somebody probably mentioned before, but I'm a big fan of the one thing, Mm. uh, Gary Keller Uh, and I think Jay Papasan, Mm -hmm. they, uh, you know, the book's basically about making sure you focus on one thing at a time and being really good at that. Don't, you know, over leverage yourself. Don't be the ultimate, you know, multitasker because you probably aren't doing a high quality job on any of the stuff you're multitasking on Uh, focus on one thing at a time. Plan Your day out accordingly. Time block, which is a big part of the book as well. Make sure you're getting your tests done and staying within your boundaries and not stay focused. So that's my definitely my first book. I would recommend I love it.
3: I would definitely say is it wait, is it one per each? Or one per, two each? per each. One per each. All right, yeah, cool. yeah. Sorry, by I, I mean, make unless sure they you can throw on. as
0: many as you want, honestly. Like we'll take as we'll take them all.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I, I wish I had a long laundry list like you do, Anthony, but, uh, I would definitely say right now, and I'm a little embarrassed to say this, but, um, I've been trying to chip away at Hal Elrod's morning, uh, miracle morning, miracle morning yep. and I definitely think and encourage everybody to take a look at that book. And And this is something I'm working on to get back on my good morning routine. But when you have a good structured morning routine where you're getting up early and and you're, you have those consistent habits that you're doing every morning. Uh, it really just sets the tone for your day and for your week. So I, I definitely encourage anybody that's, you know, either a beginner entrepreneur or trying to figure out a way that they can improve their
0: efficiency. Definitely encourage everybody to check out that book. Absolutely. If you win the morning, you can win the day. So Absolutely. start started off mm-hmm. right. I love it. Both of those books are, are fantastic. So before we let you guys out of the cage, let everybody know where they can go and find you out there in the, in the world. Yeah.
3: Thank you. So you can check us out. If you want to learn a little bit more about us, visit www.blueoakinvest.com forward slash Y real estate. You'll get a free investor guide for busy professionals and uh, you can uh, subscribe to our newsletter uh, that way. You can check us out at our South Texas multifamily and more Facebook group where we have our virtual and soon coming soon live networking events that we cannot wait to get to here in a Very couple exciting. weeks. Yes, man. I, I'm uh, unlike you, Anthony, I, I can't wait to meet people face to face. I hey, like people. <laughs> uh,
0: He's equally
1: excited to get off of zoom calls. I know that. So. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. Yeah. We're all I, think all I think we all I think we all relate to that at this point, right? Mm-hmm. Like yep, if I never have to look at a camera again, I'll be okay. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, man. It's uh, it, I think there's definitely a digital fatigue right now for yeah. sure. But, but uh that- and then lastly, I'd definitely encourage everybody to check out our podcast, the Prosperity Through Multifamily Real Estate Investing Podcast. Uh, we've had a phenomenal show uh, series so far. I think we're what, the 57 episodes in right now. We've had some phenomenal mm-hmm. guests. If you're interested in learning anything about apartment syndication, check us out. We're, we're streaming on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts,
0: and Stitcher. So, Awesome. Well, guys, I really appreciate you coming on to the show. And I think that was a pretty good inaugural duo episode. What do you think, Dan? Did we did pretty good? Yes. It was good. I mean, they did beat us up, didn't get too aggressive.
1: So mm-hmm. I feel like we mm-hmm. came out pretty good. I'm not emotionally hey, we're, bruised. We're nice guys, man. We- <laughs> yeah, you guys
3: are nice.
0: Yeah yeah you guys made this very nice and pleasant (laughs) so for you guys at home that are listening to this uh, make sure that you go out there you find these guys at blue oak capital and and connect with them because they just have a lot of information a lot of knowledge that they're dropping on the world and so you can never know too much never learn too much go connect with them and we look forward to seeing you guys next week
2: goodbye Thanks, guys.
0: thank you